This is number seven, and it is entitled, Christ the Answer. Once a year, the earthly sanctuary was to be cleansed. The day on which this event took place was called the Day of Atonement. It was a great and solemn day <clears throat> for the children of Israel. It was particularly holy also, for no one was permitted to do any work on this day. It was the keystone of the sacrificial system. Any man, woman, or child who did not make the needed preparation in afflicting his soul and making sure that every sin had been committed within the sanctuary was to be cut off from the people of Israel. We read of this in Leviticus 23, 29. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And so the Day of Atonement was a solemn occasion for everyone had to examine himself to make sure that every sin in his life had been carried within the sanctuary. In a short review, let us quickly enumerate the steps by which sin was separated from the sinner and carried into the sanctuary. You remember? First, the sinner had to bring a specified animal for a sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle. There, he placed his hands on its head and confessed his sin, thus transferring his sin to the lamb. And then with his own hand, he had to take a knife and slay the victim, for the innocent victim must die for his sins. Next, the priest would bring a bowl and take of the blood from the lamb, which now in type carried the sin, which was then brought within the sanctuary and sprinkled upon the veil. In this way, the man's sin was forgiven and transferred into the sanctuary. You can readily see that during the year with a great number of people that there was a great accumulation of sin within the tabernacle. But once a year, God purposed that these sins would be removed from the sanctuary by a cleansing process. In our last study, we learned that the priest would take the blood of the sin offering and enter within the Most Holy and there sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, thus signifying the claims of the broken law had been satisfied. Thus, symbolically, he would gather the sins and take them out of the sanctuary and place them all upon the head of the scapegoat, which would be led away from the camp of Israel into the wilderness to die. <clears throat> In this manner, 
The sanctuary was cleansed on the great day of atonement. Now, in our previous studies, we discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ entered the heavenly sanctuary's most holy place within the veil in October of 1844 and has been conducting the cleansing process of the heavenly sanctuary since that date. This has been some 150 years now. And this work, I believe, will shortly come to an end. And any individual who has not made sure that every sin is confessed and forgiven will be separated forever from God when the final act of the atonement is made. When that moment comes, Jesus will stand up and declare, as we read in Revelations 22:11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And so, our only hope is in Jesus Christ, for Christ is the only answer to the sin problem. But today, Satan is spreading a new philosophy that is completely contrary to the sanctuary system and teaching. He is leading men to think that their sin will not be discovered before Jesus comes. In Numbers 32, verse 23, we are admonished with words that it would be well for us to ponder. Behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Let me impress this upon our hearts. Some years ago, a traveling newspaper correspondent observed a man carrying an old cane with some peculiar carvings on it. He thought very little of it until two months later he was in the same vicinity and learned that an elderly man and his wife had been beaten to death. No one seemed to know why the murder had been committed, for the elderly couple had been loved by all. But this man and his wife had been beaten to death with some kind of a stick. The correspondent went to the authorities and gave them a description of the man he had seen with this strange cane. And six, six months later, the police found the man and brought him to justice. The judge was seated, the jury was chosen, but now the man had an alibi for every indictment. It seemed that the court couldn't prove a thing against him. The judge was actually beginning to believe that maybe they had the wrong man, and the jury felt likewise, until suddenly the door opened into the courtroom, and the newspaper correspondent walked down the aisle of the courtroom. 
In his hand he was carrying a blood-stained cane that he had found in the woods near the murdered victim's home. When the man who was accused of this brutal saying, slaying, saw the cane, his face suddenly turned white and he began to shake. Everyone in the courtroom knew he was guilty. Be sure, your sin will find you out. In fact, there are many today who think that they can give a reasonable answer why they don't surrender their sins to Jesus and ask him to plead their case before God. There are many <clears throat> who convince their pastor that they are pretty good individuals and therefore headed for the kingdom. But you want to know something? God knows. There are husbands who convince their wives that they are the best husbands that ever walked on the earth. But God knows. And there are wives who fool their husbands, leading them to think that they have been true to their marriage vows. But God knows. And there are some young people, sons and daughters, who convince their parents that they are just about perfect. But God knows. Some even have the ability to convince themselves that they are quite religious and somehow they are going to be saved when Jesus comes. But God knows. How do we know this? That God cannot be fooled? Because I read in Psalms 44:21, Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Let me bring this closer home to us as individuals. Imagine with me that there is a certain young man who has a wife and two children. This young man is a good-looking young fellow. He has a good job. He's a fine citizen. He pays his taxes. <coughs> he is well thought of in the community. He may even go to church, but he is under the conviction that he must come to the Lamb of God and confess his sins so that Jesus can cover his sins in the sanctuary with his blood. But somehow, he just never gets around to doing what he knows he ought to do. Why? Well, maybe it's the Sabbath question. He knows that he should keep the seventh-day Sabbath. He knows that the Bible teaches that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord his God. He knows that it's a part of the divine law. But there is a problem with his work. And should he give up that day of recreation? He just doesn't want to give what God has asked for. No. Maybe that's not the problem. Maybe it's the problem of paying tithe. He knows that 10% of his income belongs to the Lord. He has so many blessings. <coughs> Two little children, a beautiful wife, a car, 
a lovely home, but he wants many other things, and he just can't afford to pay tithe, so he thinks. Maybe that's not it. Maybe it's a habit, some secret bad habit, like smoking, or maybe he takes an occasional drink with the boys at work. He doesn't think anybody knows about this, but you see, God knows. Maybe it's, maybe it's the love of some pleasure. In his heart, he knows it is contrary to God, and he just can't give it up. Maybe the real issue is this. He knows that in the Bible, he says he should be baptized. And he has never been baptized. He knows what God's word says, John 3, 5, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever the problem is, here is a young man with a problem of sin in his life. And one day, something happens that he didn't plan on. He was thinking deeply about his work, and he starts across the street without looking. Suddenly, is hit by an automobile, and his life is instantly snuffed out. Oh, there's a great funeral in the church. The pastor, thinking that he was ready for the kingdom, presents many wonderful eulogies. But let me ask you a question. Can God accept this young man? And another question. Can this man, now dead, do anything about correcting the record that he has left on the books of heaven? What does God say about the state of the dead? In Ezekiel 9, verses 5, 6, and 10, we are told that the living know that they shall die, but the dead they know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Then comes the admonition. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. For there is no work, no device, no knowledge, no wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. And so the word of God has made it very clear that since this young man has died, he cannot do anything to correct his past mistakes. He's dead, he's buried. But is this the end? Oh, no. We read in God's word that this man must now face the judgment. In the book of Hebrews 9.27 are these words, It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. 
Now we have arrived at the crucial issue. What's this judgment all about, friend? It has to do with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And that's what this series of studies is all about. You remember in Daniel 8:14, the angel said, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And in the autumn of 1844, Jesus Christ stepped in before the throne of God within the most holy in the heavenly sanctuary, and the judgment proceedings began. There are no words in the Bible that are more striking than those describing this judgment scene. In Daniel 7, 9, and 10, it says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, which means placed, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then these words, the judgment was set, and the books were opened. Consider with me what happened when this great court of God convened in heaven in the year 1844. The first case was that of Abel, who had been murdered by his brother Cain, for he was the first man to die in this world. Although Abel was a sinner, for it says in the scripture that all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God, yet Abel, believing in Jesus Christ, took a lamb as God had required and confessed his sins, transferring these sins to the lamb, and then with his own hand he slew the sacrifice. And in Jesus Christ, the lamb of God took Abel's sins. Now, if we could have a replay of what must have happened, we would have seen Jesus standing before God the Father in the heavenly sanctuary. <clears throat> the books are opened in which are recorded the sins of Abel. But we see Jesus Christ <clears throat> standing before God and saying, Father, <clears throat> I died for Abel. I have covered his sins with my blood. I want him to live in heaven with us. God looks at Jesus and he repeats those wonderful words. Retain his name in the book of life. Next case. I can't tell you who the next case was. But somewhere along the line, Cain died, and let us suppose that his name 
comes up next. As I look into your faces, you act a bit surprised. Was Cain a religious man? Well, you would hardly think so, since the Bible says he murdered his brother. But look a little closer. <clears throat> you will find that indeed he was quite a religious man. He knew that he was a sinner and that he needed to get right with God. But he didn't want to do exactly what God asked him to do. And so instead of bringing a lamb for a sacrifice, he decided that he would go out and dig up some vegetables out of his garden. He built an altar, and he placed these counterfeit vegetables or offering upon the altar, and then he knelt down and prayed, asking God to forgive him and to receive him. But remember the words of Hebrews 9.22? Without the shedding of blood is no remission. Cain did not do as God had asked. He did not bring a lamb representing Christ. And God will never accept a counterfeit. Cain became so angry because God would not accept his counterfeit sacrifice that he killed his brother. All this is recorded in the books of heaven. And what happened? As the books were opened and the record is revealed, can Jesus stand up as an advocate for Cain? As far as we know, he cannot. He will have to remain silent. We find no record in the Bible that Cain ever accepted Jesus. He did not accept the way of Christ as outlined in the sacrificial system of the sanctuary. Can you imagine the sad words of God as the name of Cain is considered when God says, put Cain's name in the book of death. And so the judgment goes on for all people who have ever lived on this earth. For everyone is judged according to the records in the book of heaven. Each individual is accepted or rejected as determined by the answer to one question. Has the blood of Christ covered his sins. I must repeat that. Each individual is accepted or rejected as determined by the answer to one question. Has the blood of Christ covered his sins? Now let's go back to the funeral of this young man who was killed by an automobile. This imaginary young man, whom we're talking about, who lived a pretty good life, but did not obey God in his daily living. What happens to him next? The Bible says in John 3.16 <clears throat> that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In this court scene in heaven, can you visualize God turning to Christ the Son and saying, Son, did we do everything that we could possibly do for this young man that he might be saved? And there stands Jesus before the Father. Watch as he points to the nail prints in his hands and to the wound in his side, saying, Father, I gave my life for that young man. Father, I died on Calvary. What more could I have done for him? But he would not obey. He would not accept my sacrifice as provided. I, therefore, cannot cover his sins with my blood. Slowly but surely, God says, put his name in the book of death. Am I making this too real? Am I making the sanctuary system simple to understand? Friend, this is exactly what is going on in the heavenly sanctuary as you listen to this message this very moment. The cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven is real. Your name may be next. Mine might come up this very moment. It makes you think seriously, doesn't it? Are we ready for our names to come up before God? Let me continue with this story. This is not the end of this young man. Since his name has been declared to be written in the book of death, for when Jesus comes the second time, there will be a resurrection. I read of this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with our Lord. Now at this first resurrection, <clears throat> when Jesus returns to this earth, this young man will not be resurrected. For only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will come forth in this first resurrection. But let's consider this young man's family. Let's say that as time goes on, this young man's wife and his two daughters live faithfully, keeping the commandments of God, making sure that every sin was confessed and covered by the blood of Jesus until the day they too pass into the grave. Now, as Jesus comes in his second coming with his angels, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, 
He looks upon the sleeping saints' graves, and he calls for the righteous to come forth. This mother and the two daughters come out of their grave clothed in immortality. I can visualize this mother looking around for her husband. She thought he was a good man, but she sees that his grave beside hers has not been opened. Yet, yes, there are tears in her eyes, but God says that he shall wipe away all tears. She and her daughters are lifted up into the clouds by the cherubim angels, taken to heaven, where they will spend the next 1,000 years with the Lord. We read of this in Revelations 20, 6 and 4. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But what about this young man, this father, this husband? For it says in Revelations 25, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years had finished. For at the end of the thousand years, Jesus is going to come back to this earth with all of his living saints, and he will bring with him that great city, the New Jerusalem. As Jesus descends to the earth, this is the time that the second resurrection takes place. It is the resurrection of the wicked. And the multitude will be as the sands of the seashore. They will come up out of their graves all over this earth. Now, picture with me this young man as he comes forth in this final resurrection. He looks around and he sees the city of God. He says to himself, that's strange. That isn't what I used to read in my Bible. And then he sees the wicked of all ages. Something is wrong. What is it? And then, then he remembers that he did not obey God and follow Christ in the way of salvation as taught in the sanctuary system. He did not repent and confess his sins. He did not transfer his sins to Jesus and accept his death for his sins. He did not allow Christ to take his sins into the sanctuary 
and separate those sins from his sinful heart. Therefore, Christ was unable to be his advocate before God. Christ would have gladly covered his sins with his blood and blotted them out if this young man had been obedient. For Christ freely provides his wonderful grace that we may obey. And so the scripture is now fulfilled. Be sure your sins will find you out. Suddenly fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours this young man with his wickedness. Dear friend, this need never happen to you or to me. It just doesn't have to be this way. Not when Christ has provided such a wonderful way of escape. You see, Jesus came to this earth as the Lamb, the Lamb of God, to save us from our sins, as you read in Matthew one twenty one, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And friend, there is no sinner in this world who has gone too far in the depths of sin that Jesus cannot forgive and save. Listen to what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And Paul tells us that there is hope for every one of us. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And so, Jesus is the answer. He alone can save us. Won't you let him take your sin right now, friend? Will you let him present your case before the Father in his righteousness so that he can pronounce you as one who has never sinned? You know, this may sound too good to be true, but friend, it is true. And Paul says that we should come boldly. Don't hesitate. Decide from now on that by the grace of God, you are going to keep the commandments by his grace and to obey all of his biddings. Give Jesus your sins this very moment. Let him forgive your sins and cover every sin with his precious blood. And then, ask the Father to write your name in the book of life. In this manner, you are ready for the final day of atonement that is now taking place 
in the heavenly sanctuary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we see ourselves in great need. We are all sinners. But we come boldly to thee and we praise thee and thank thee that thou hast prepared a way in which our sins can be covered by your precious blood. And that in the great sanctuary day of atonement now taking place, we can be presented before God with every sin confessed and that we may hear God proclaim that we are worthy to be thy sons and daughters. O oh God, thank you for giving your Son that has made possible that we may stand in this day of judgment in the sanctuary above is our prayer in Jesus' name. I trust that you are enjoying this series of studies which I have entitled The Sanctuary Made Plain and Simple. I wish we had time to dig deeper into these glorious truths for the sanctuary doctrine is a pillar of our faith, the very foundation of our belief. But now the time has come to blow the trumpet of Zion in a warning to reveal how Satan is using some pastors and leaders to undermine the sanctuary truth by declaring that a total atonement was weighed at the cross on Calvary. Therefore, we ought to be teaching salvation's gospel like all the surrounding churches and that there are some who are going so far in error as to publicly teach that there is no sanctuary in heaven. So, in our next study, we are going to examine the atonement and discover that it has a dual nature and purpose. Don't let anything cause you to miss hearing this most important message. I can assure you, it will be an eye-opener. In the meantime, may God keep you in the paths of truth, that you may be ever ready to meet Jesus. Remember, keep the faith. <laughs>